we adapt and overcome. I think we need to apply that to our organizational level when we start thinking outside of the box as far as how do we fund these projects and how do we conduct the training. And, and I think the more that we get more creative and build relationships and partnerships, we'll all benefit in the end. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. We all know training is critical to good performance, especially these days when there are fewer real-world fires, but the ones that do ignite burn hotter and faster. Problem is, a lot of training is not very realistic. Classroom instruction only goes so far, and hands-on costs money. It also takes equipment, and some departments don't have that to spare. Here to offer some ideas is Jason Coy. Jason is the chief of Laramie County Fire District Number 2 in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Before he arrived in Cheyenne in 2011, he was the chief of Gore Hill Fire Rescue in Great Falls, Montana. He spent 10 years working for the Montana Fire Services Training School as a regional instructor and a regional training manager for the state of Montana. He's also a current technical member of the UL Positive Pressure Test Committee, and he teaches a college course on fire behavior. And Jason Coy joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Thanks for having me. How much is a lack of resources affecting hands-on training overall? I think it's pretty significant as the burden gets greater and greater for training for especially the smaller volunteer and rural communities. Uh, the lack of or ability, inability to do hands-on training becomes critical. So what kind of training should departments be doing if they could afford it? I think the more realistic training that uh, organizations can conduct better prepares your firefighters to react appropriately in their time of need. As you know, the decision-making model and the time frame that you have to make a decision, especially on a structure fire, condensed significantly. So just like a boxer prepares to box by sparring in the ring, we should be sparring out on the training ground, attacking fire training just like we would a real incident. Now, a lot of fire departments or officers in them are going to argue that, of course, they do enough training. Is it a matter of doing enough of the right kind of training? Yeah, I think you just hit a a bigger issue right on the head, and that is, if you look back 40 or 50 years ago, the required training for a fire department did not include EMS, paramedic, hazmat, uh, special rescue, confined space, HR type stuff. We're being asked to conduct a whole bunch more training in a lot new venues that we've never had to before. And what that's done is it's spread our time and it's reduced the amount of time that we can spend on those things that are going to kill us 
or those things that are going to hurt us the most. So I think you're right that we're not spending the training time on the stuff that we need to spend it on, and then also we're asked to do so much more than we used to that we don't have enough time to get it all accomplished. So thus we have to be more efficient with what what we train on and when we train on it. And that's what hands-on training does for you. It allows you to incorporate a number of skills in context and train on them all at once instead of breaking it down in parts and pieces over longer duration. What do departments need that they're not able to get a hold of so that they can't do things as well as they ought to be able to? Yeah, I think I'll take a, my organization, for example, is a, is a rural community just outside the city of Cheyenne, Wyoming. We have three stations and roughly uh, 85 volunteer members. And their time is extremely valuable. And the things that we lack opportunities to are are live burns, so real live burns where the fire behavior is appropriate to get the number of reputations to be proficient at the skill set. Vehicle extrication, we used to be able to get cars relatively easily, and it gets harder and harder to get the number of cars we need so that our firefighters can get the repetitions that they need to be very proficient and skilled with it. Why is that that you're having a hard time getting those cars now? I, I think the the bigger issue or the problem with getting those cars is, one, most of the cars by the time they make it to the junkyard are, are pretty tough shape. Two, those junkyards are turning them. It used to be that you would drive by a, a salvation yard or a junkyard and they would have stacks and stacks and stacks of cars. They're recycling those vehicles as fast as they can because they can get more dollars for them than they can for parts out of them. Now, what about live burns? I mean, are you talking about acquired structures here? Acquired structures is a big part of it. As you know, burn buildings and and burn containers are, are good training props, but there's limitations to those, right? In fact, when we look at 1400 and we look at what it takes to do acquired structure burns or, or live burns, we always you end up telling the, the students don't put the fire out because we don't want to have to restart it or we can't restart it very easy. We're using non-realistic flame. You know, we're using theater smoke a lot of times. A lot of those things really kind of are a benefit in that we can train more often, but they're also counterproductive in that they give us a false sense of security in our skill set because we start to expect the fire to go out to right away because a person turned off the propane tank on the fire, or we expect to be able to find the victim right away because we had good visibility and no interior clutter of an interior structure, which is not the case when you go to a real fire. So our training models need to start to look more like what we actually see in the field. And that's a balancing point between safety and then also realism, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can get out of a burn building where it's essentially predictable. Right. So then, then it's time to look for an acquired structure. Are those getting harder to find also? They are. They are very much so. We were fortunate um, last week to do um, partner with the Colorado Department to conduct two homes that we acquired for one week's worth of training where we got to um, do a number of different tactics. They, they performed tactics. They tested their, their, their folks on what they were doing as far as how to attack fires, and we also collected a lot of data out of it. And when we get those opportunities, that, that is realistic 
environment that we can really learn from and practice with. You, you hit the nail on the head again with there's only so much you can do with fire behavior in, in, a, in a burn building. Uh, we tell our folks that's basically a campfire when you're burning pallets. That's a campfire inside of a concrete building. It doesn't react the same way that a real acquired structure or a real structure fire works. And so we try to preemptively discuss those differences, but until you see it and taste it and, and, and really experience the real thing, you don't know what you're missing through just the, uh, a burn building. Are there any other training opportunities that are being missed for lack of resources or funding? Yeah, I think there's always a challenge with training, especially for the smaller organizations and even the large organizations, that it's, it's resource-heavy. If you're a large organization running lots of calls, you have to have backfill, you have to have dollar amounts to, to be able to staff your 911 calls and then also conduct training. And if you're a smaller organization, it's finding the resources to train at. Maybe your community doesn't have a burn building or doesn't have a salvage yard, so you have to travel to the neighboring community, which takes your responders out of, out of your neighborhood or out of the response area. So I think resources are both financial and manpower or, or personnel time become very dependent uh, on the success of what happens with training. I was interested to hear you mention that you'd partnered with a Colorado agency. Is that something that you've done previously to make it possible to do something that neither one of you could do independently? Yeah, absolutely. We we started building relationship. We're 12 miles from the Colorado border, so we have a close proximity that we can gain resources from, from Colorado and other parts of the state. But about seven years ago, we started working with them very closely and, and started to share training and share opportunities. And we've hosted and conducted live burns and acquired structures with each other. We've hosted international fire behavior programs where we've brought international instructors to our region to share those costs of expenses because our organization couldn't do that on their own. But with the partnership, we're able to bring those resources locally here within the region to, to host training and conduct training. Is there grant money out there that might help pay for this sort of thing? Those walls are drying up a little bit, but there are still programs out there to help fund some of those training opportunities. And I think partnership with not only grants through like the AFG grant program and the SAFER grant program, Firehouse Subs, some of the corporate grant programs, there's also the opportunity to partner with local colleges that host fire science programs. There's opportunity to partner with neighboring agencies where you now can have skin in the game and share some of those expenses. And then our industrial partners. We're a very, having a significant gas and oil industry around us growing. Those industrial partners are willing to help support training financially when it can benefit the protection of their personnel and their assets. So partnering with those and reaching outside of our normal uh, avenues to conduct training really can become beneficial. It sounds like it takes a little creativity, but it's possible to pull it off. Scott, I think you're right on. I think one of the things that the fire service is extremely good at and we fail to recognize sometimes is we are really creative. We overcome many challenges on the fire ground or an emergency scene without even thinking about it. We, we adapt and overcome. 
I think we need to apply that to our organizational level when we start thinking outside of the box as far as how do we fund these projects and how do we conduct the training. And, and I think the more that we get more creative and build relationships and partnerships with not only other fire agencies but corporate and industrial programs and, and college programs, we'll all benefit in the end. All right, Jason Coy, thanks for joining me today on Code 3. It was absolutely my honor. Thanks for having me. And we put some information on better training and what it might cost on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash resources. Check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. This time we talked funding and equipping training exercises. Do you have any ideas that have solved the problem? How do you deal with it? I'd like to hear from you on this. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com or leave a voicemail at 562-337-9902. I will read your comments and play your messages on a future show. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.